Thank you, Harriet, Linda, and Bonnie. And thank you, Roy, for earlier. That was a wonderful story and a wonderful song. I loved it. Um, well, good morning, everyone. I see everyone is casually dressed. I am as well. I've been telling everybody that if I was the most ridiculous, you would all feel comfortable. Which is why I'm wearing black shoes and white socks and a jersey of a hockey team. Um, so, still, it's a good day. It's second day of fall, and let's just rejoice about this. Um, so, we're going to turn to our Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Um, we do have a bit to go through, so I won't read the verses as normal, but I'll, we'll go through them together. So, if we recall, the last chapter saw the story of uh, Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And in that story, we found that this scheme to bring about the promised child that God had promised. And Sarai came up with this whole scheme, and it basically blew up in everyone's faces, like most schemes do. Um, Still, though, we learned a little bit about God, even in the fact that with this scheme still came promises and still came blessing, and God still looked after even Hagar, who was merely a servant who bore Ishmael. Well, this week we're going to come to a a different story, um, and actually it comes a bit after what we just read about. So, we'll start off with verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my kingdom between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So chapter 17, it begins with telling us how old Abram is at the time that the Lord appears to him. Because of this, we understand that it has been 13 years since the birth of Ishmael. So between chapters 16 and 17, 13 years have passed. Thus the stage is set for a time period with Sarai's continued inability to give birth and Abram's continued assumption that Ishmael is going to be his heir. God begins with stating who he is. We notice it is translated as God Almighty. That is, um, in the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. The term El is the general term used for God, similar to our use of God. Um, Shaddai, however, has caused some debate. Most conclude that it deals with sufficiency. Thus, God who is sufficient. In this sense, we understand it to mean God is capable, he is able to do what he is planning to do. Before this, however, God also gives a command to Abram to walk before him. This expression is similar to Enoch and Noah, who were mentioned previously. They walked with God. The expression implies living for God, or in light of knowing God, to live in a way which honors him. This is further emphasized by being told to be blameless, of which only Noah is spoken of attaining. In this, it implies living a total moral life in light of who God is. Yet, what is the purpose of this life calling? The answer is the covenant. 
Some might wonder about this since the covenant was previously inaugurated by God without Abraham or Abram. Thus, most conclude that in this instance the covenant is ratified with both parties being present. In regards to the covenant, there is nothing Abram can offer, but instead is the recipient of the blessing. But for his part in the covenant, he must walk with God as God of all. In doing this, the covenant will be ratified. So far, Abram has the correct response, which is prostration before God. Abram recognizes the promise and rightly recognizes this is truly God, El Shaddai, who is sufficient and capable of carrying out the promise. This in turn causes Abram to show his humility before such a God as this. After Abram's response, God continues with elements of the covenant. Firstly, that the covenant is with Abram, and an aspect of this covenant is that Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations. Um, This goes beyond what was described previously. Whereas previously, Abram was going to have a great nation, now many nations will stem from Abram. Now because of this, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means, as the text says, father of a multitude of nations. In previous eras, one's name had a greater meaning than it does in our own time. Indeed, we can think of Noah being specially named, or later Jacob, whose name changed to Israel, which means to struggle against God. As such, Abraham's new name is not only a name, but a continued guarantee of the promise. The text continues by describing Abraham as being blessed to be fruitful and multiply. This is the same characterization described with both Adam and Noah, thus putting Abraham on par with both individuals who are so important for the book of Genesis. Though it should be noticed that this is a particular blessing which God establishes with Noah and his descendants as God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Indeed, from Abraham will even come kings, a prelude to the kingdom era of the people of Israel. One might think that the covenant thus far is enough, but God continues by declaring the covenant is not only between Abraham and and himself, that is God, but also between Abraham's descendants and God. Thus, they are benefactors of the covenant as well. They will receive all the blessing and the promises described in the covenant. This is the first time in the text that the entirety of the covenant is given to Abraham's descendants as well. Thus, the covenant is an everlasting covenant between God and the people of Abraham. Yet it goes further in one more sense, and that is the greatest of blessings is put forth, that God will be their God. In this sense, God is establishing with Abraham and his descendants the reality that they are his people, and he is their God. There is a special and unique relationship between the two, now and forever. This speech ends with the declaration of the land itself. This is the first time that Canaan, in particular, is stated as the land which God has given. As such, this land belongs to God, and he is the one who gives it to Abraham and his descendants forever. Yet it is not the land which is the most important aspect, but again, the statement that God will be their God. Without this, the land means nothing, and without this, the people of Israel's covenant with God would have absolutely no value. So now we come to verses 19 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So a covenant is ratified not only by one party, but by two. Thus God has stated his part in the covenant to bless Abraham and his descendants. Now Abraham's obligation to the covenant becomes the focus. The phraseology shifts in verse 10. Whereas previously the you was more singular, not the you, now the you becomes plural. This emphasizes the fact that it is not just Abraham who is called to keep the obligation, but all of his descendants. The obligation itself is stated as God commands that every male shall be circumcised. Just in case Abraham had any doubts as to what was being said, the flesh is specified for the circumcision. Now, instead of focusing on that aspect, however, we're going to focus on the second half of the verse, which says, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Um, The last time this expression of a sign was used was with the rainbow. There, the rainbow was not only a sign to mankind, but also for God to remember his promise to the world. Some have even argued that this is the case here, that God sees the circumcised and is remembered of his covenant with Abraham. Yet, the text itself does not establish this as it does with the rainbow. Thus, it is better to understand the sign to be the covenant itself, like the covenant itself. The males will permanently mark themselves, reflects the eternality of the covenant. Thus, circumcision is more a reminder to the people of their call to let God be their God as he has promised to be, which comes with the notion to walk with God and be blameless. Hence, the man's most private area being marked with will cause them to remember the promises of God and their obligation to be God's people and to walk with him. Indeed, this makes most sense, especially since circumcision was practiced by many Old Testament peoples, including the Egyptians. In fact, um, the Egyptians, the most pious, the most religious of their people would circumcise themselves. Um, Thus, for God to be reminded by circumcision would imply all who are circumcised fall into the covenant, but as we know, that's not the case. As a side note, some might wonder why women were not also to be circumcised. Um, That was actually an ancient practice at times. However, during the time period when women were circumcised, there's a difference between male and female circumcision even today. A female circumcision was used more of a way of torture and humiliation. Um, It is not pleasant for a woman to be circumcised at all. Um, Not only this, but there are those who would argue that if a man and his wife become one flesh, then there is no need for the wife to be circumcised since the husband is already circumcised. There are many also to be an element of progeny involved, that women experience the promise in a particular way through childbirth, whereas men are unable to experience that childbirth themselves. Yet as it is, this is speculation because regardless of childbirth, women and even uh, marriage, women are still part of the people of Abraham. So it's not just about the progeny. The text then details who are to be circumcised. 
Indeed, children born into the household are to be circumcised eight days after their birth. We find this to be the case throughout the history of Abraham's people, as it is stated as happening with Jesus after his birth, and Paul himself later on, some 2,000 years after Abraham, boasts about the fact that he had, um, well, jokingly boasts that he had been eight days old when he was circumcised. Yet it is not only individuals who are born into the family. Indeed, those born into the household and those who are bought with money will be circumcised as well. Um, And it's interesting, a new community is being established by God with Abraham. And as such, there's no partiality within the community. Whether one enters in through blood or not, circumcision is required. Um, Thus, whether or not one is a slave or one is born to the favored household, ultimately, if you're circumcised, you are part of that community. We also see how, again, the circumcision as the sign of the everlasting covenant between God and his people. When they consider circumcision, they are to consider their God. There is a warning here, however. Adults who come into the family may not want to become circumcised. If they should refrain from the covenant, then there are serious ramifications. In particular, that they will be cut off from his people. Now, there are two interpretations to this. The first is that they will be excommunicated from the people. Um, The second is that God will judge that person with a punishment likely involving an untimely death. The reason for the seriousness of the punishment is simple. They have broken the covenant. God has promised everything in the covenant, blessing upon blessing, with the greatest blessing that he will be their God. To then refuse to submit to the covenant, to not fulfill the obligation, it has dire ramifications. Indeed, to not be cut is to be cut off, which I thought was funny. (laughs) Anyway. All right, so the main point of these verses are to establish the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. Whereas previously the covenant was made between God and Abram, now the covenant deals with Abraham's descendants forever. They will receive the blessings, uh, the greatest of which will be that God will be theirs and they will be his. They are to receive the sign of the covenant, which reminds them of their calling to walk with God and to be blameless. Those who refuse to be cut will be cut off themselves for breaking the covenant. Ultimately, the covenant reminds us that God is sufficient. We see this as all the promises are in his hands. The people only to remain, need to remain faithful to do what God has called them to do in order to receive that blessing. All right. Application points for circumcision. Who's excited? No pictures. In reading today's text, it could be assumed that circumcision is a necessary requirement when it comes to the faith. When we read about it, the way in which all males are to be circumcised, one could understand it to mean, even unto this day, males must be circumcised in order to receive the blessing of the covenant between God and Abraham. It seems rather clear-cut in that regard. It should not surprise any of us, then, that this was a serious point of contention after the resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, for the first century Christians, this very thought came to the forefront of their discussions— What happens when one comes to the faith? Is it necessary for Gentiles who are uncircumcised to become circumcised? What of the promise and of the requirements? Ultimately, there became a camp known to us today as the Judaizers who argued that such was the case. When Gentiles came to the faith, they should be circumcised as a requirement. This became such a serious issue within the first century church that the very first Jerusalem council was established because of it. How to handle those coming to the faith, which was Jewish by definition of not Jewish backgrounds. 
So the council was set up to discuss and debate what it is that should be done with these converts. Thankfully, we do not need to guess about all these things. In fact, Acts 15 details much of what occurred and the decision that came in the end. Now consider what we read from Acts 15. And I I love Acts because it's so historical. Um, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So thus far, Paul and Barnabas are there and they're having this debate. And um, what happens is, is that Paul and Barnabas are sent back up to Jerusalem. And on the way, they're stopping at the synagogues. And they're talking to the Christian believers, the Jewish Christian believers, telling them how the Gentiles are coming to the faith. And everyone's excited. But then they get back to Jerusalem and there's this one group that says they still have to be circumcised. So then, this is when the debate happens. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter, who was Christ's heir in a way, he was a pillar of the Jerusalem church, of the church itself, stands up and says, I disagree with you Pharisees. I disagree with you Judaizers. We're saved by Jesus, not about our works. And then verse 12 happens. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from that which has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has been in every city those who proclaim him, for it is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, James then, 
um, speaks up. And James is, is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. And he actually, most people don't realize this, but in the Jerusalem church there was Peter, and then after Peter was James. James had actually risen to quite an authority within the church, and he actually died on the temple um, steps, as history proclaims. But still, from this moment on, the debate was considered settled in the church. The apostles and the elders had come together to discuss what it means for these new Gentile converts to come to the faith. They reasoned together. They looked to the law, the prophets, the writings, and ultimately the two leading voices of the early church, that is Peter and James, made a mutual and similar, similar declaration. Ultimately, if God's grace came upon the Gentiles, regardless if they were circumcised, then it seems it was unnecessary for them to become circumcised in order to be considered part of the faith in the promise. After this, the council, they sent a letter to the church informing them of what had been decreed, and since then the church's stance on circumcision had been the same. We are not saved by our works, but through the work of Jesus Christ. Circumcision cannot add or subtract anything from the salvation we find in Christ Jesus. It does not add or subtract to the promises of God found in Christ. Um, I'm going to take a second real quick. Something that he says at the very end, though, and I didn't write it down, I didn't write it in my sermon, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to take a moment. Look at this, ad-libbing. Who's excited? I am. Um, we notice that they say in verse 20, but should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Um, and now, it's interesting that they should write those three things. Do you want to know why? Because those are the things that are actually before the coming of the law. Sexual immorality is what caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. Um, things strangled in blood. You're not supposed to eat from the blood. We learned that from Noah. You're not supposed to eat that. Um, also polluted by idols. It's, it's a recognition of what um, the fact that idols are supposed to eat in an essence of what has been offered by this food. So the fact that they're kind of going back even before the law is a very important part for them, I think. So, Indeed, those who are of Gentile background, who have not been circumcised, do not need to be circumcised because if they are in Christ, then all the promises of God through the covenant are given to them by their faith. Because Jesus is the perfect, holy, and pleasing Son of God who fulfilled all the commandments, all the law, and in return receives all the promises of the covenant, then those who place their faith in him also receive the same. Now, because of this, Paul and Galatians wrote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And later on, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The first century Christians recognized the significance of Christ of not only bringing salvation, but bringing about the fulfillment of all the covenants, of all the law, of all the prophets, of all the writing. As such, circumcision can't add anything to the promise, nor uncircumcision take anything away, because it is the person of Christ through whom the promises are fulfilled. Thus, we receive it by grace through faith in Christ. Now, some might look at this and thing, and then they'll say, well, does that mean that we're allowed, we don't follow any law? Do we not live in any way? I would argue no. Since throughout the New Testament, the law is always alluded to in how we are to live. Indeed, Paul deals with this very issue in Romans when he says, What then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. And that by no means, I had a Romans professor, and he said, heck no, is what Paul's saying there. No, heck no. He did not say heck. Um, I know it's casual Sunday, but no, we're not doing that. Um, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because you are of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In other words, though we are under grace, we still recognize that Christ is Lord of all. Being Lord of all, We have been called to live in a way which glorifies him. He is righteous, therefore we are to be righteous. He is moral, therefore we are to be moral. He is love, so we must love. This does not mean that we are saved by these deeds. Instead, they show us to be under his lordship. Recognizing his great love for us, we love him by giving all of ourselves to him in return. In order, to, un- in order to, um, to understand this further, however, what righteousness is and what impurity and lawlessness are, we must read the scriptures and understand them, all of them, in light of the gospel of Jesus. Thus, our call is to be faithful, to seek understanding, to gain knowledge, and to give ourselves over to God by continuing to seek to understand and to follow him and in his ways. Now, as a final reflection about circumcision itself, There are individuals today who believe that circumcision is actually a human rights issue. I know. Um, They will tell us that if anyone should circumcise their child, it is child abuse. Because the child should have the right to make that decision for themselves. Personally, I am not convinced of the arguments. In the end, it is the parent's decision as to what they feel led to do when it comes to their male offspring. The one caution I would give is this. We cannot assume that if circumcision occurs, then it will mean blessings or being made right with God. Simply put, it does not add nor does it subtract from this. Nothing we can do will add or subtract from the promises fulfilled in Jesus. So we must remember this in light of the gospel. Circumcision or not will not mean a greater spiritual identity with God. If we are of the faith then we already have the highest possible amount of grace, peace, mercy, and love which can be given since we are in Christ and he is in us. Um, Our identities are with Jesus. And now, let's look at this for a second. Jesus, he was circumcised, yes? Yes? So if you are in Christ, what does that mean? That circumcision applies to you. So circumcision is not necessary. So to conclude, circumcision will not cause the promises or the covenant with Abraham to be fulfilled. Instead, Christ has already fulfilled it. And as such, we attain this covenant and the promise by faith in Christ. For we are in Christ. All right, one more thought and then, I know, you're all hungry. One of the key elements of this passage 
is the fact that circumcision is a sign. We reflected on how such a sign was previously seen when the rainbow appeared after the flood. In both instances, the sign indicates that the promise is sure and that the covenant will remain. In the New Testament, we do have elements of signs as well. We see the signs in what we call sacraments. A loosely based definition of a sacrament is a visible expression of an invisible truth. So it is, we do have such signs, such sacraments, that we practice even to this day. The one which perhaps identifies most with circumcision in the New Testament is actually baptism. Indeed, consider what Paul says in Colossians 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In this text, Paul equates baptism as a sign of what has occurred with us through Jesus. Through baptism, we see the sign of being buried with Jesus and being raised with Jesus. Just as Christ died but was raised into eternal glory, so when we die, if we are in Christ, we too will be raised into eternal glory because of him. Just, just as circumcision is a sign of the promise and the covenant, so baptism is a sign of our status in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yet it is not only baptism which is a sign in the New Testament. Jesus also gave us another sign when it comes to him, and that is what he has done in the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, communion. We remember his words, This is my body which is for you, and this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice the statements, his body, his blood. The times we celebrate communion together are a sign of what Christ has accomplished. Through his blood, he has brought about a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, for those who have faith in him. In both baptism and communion, then, we see the signs of that which is the truth, that God is with us and he has established with us a covenant. Likewise, when we consider that the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit, we find another element of what we read. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, then, is a sign of the inheritance which we have in Christ. His Spirit within us, who urges us into righteousness, to seek holiness, and to desire the glory of our God in our lives, is the one who also reminds us of the truth that our inheritance is an eternal inheritance, an eternal possession of eternal life, of an eternal kingdom. In all of these things, it is good for us to consider these when the devil and his minions attack us or when darkness of any kind come at us. For while we are in Christ, the truth of his gospel reigns supreme. When we consider then our baptism or communion or his spirit within us, we're reminded of the promises of God which have been fulfilled and which will be fulfilled. And remembering these things will give us an advantage when darkness comes. Yet in all of this, it isn't just the sign. Because as it is, every sign has truth. 
And that truth is found in Christ and his covenant. So cling to Jesus, knowing that all the Father has promised has been fulfilled through his precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior. Indeed, his covenant, it takes all the other covenants and makes them all into one, and we inherit it all because of what he has done. So, I guess the question is, how does this story about Abraham and the covenant, and when it comes to Judaism and Christianity, how does that all relate together? Well, in regards to origins, you know, the promise does originate here. (laughs) So there's an origin there, isn't there? Um, the promise of progeny, but also of kings, of kingdoms coming under Abraham. How does that even work? I mean, we know about Israel and Judah. Those were kingdoms. But that's not just it, is it? Because think about it this way. Under Abraham and the faith came the promise of Jesus, that by faith we would receive righteousness. You are an American Christian, or should I say a Christian who lives in America. There's a little kingdom there. Um, let's say for Britain. The Christians in Britain. Little kingdom there, if there are. Just kidding. <laughs> That's a joke. It's a joke. Anyway. Um, in Africa. In Asia. There's little kingdoms of these different people groups. But it's all under one kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ. And so it is that the origins of the promise are really found in the covenants. Covenants with Noah, Abraham, David. And they're all rolled into one in Jesus Christ who fulfills all of them. And in which if we have faith in him, we get to experience the blessing. Um, And so it is origins. We see that. But then we also, we don't really get to the fall this time. We'll get to the fall next week (laughs) a little bit with Ishmael. Um, But we also recognize the fact that Abraham and his descendants on their own are not able to fulfill the covenant in the end. Uh, We see that in what Peter wrote or said in the council at Acts in Jerusalem. Why are we going to put a yoke on these people when we can't even bear the yoke? You know? And that's because sin came into the world. We can't fulfill it all because we are sinful people and we break the promises and we break our own covenants. But thanks be to God that there's redemption in Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, the covenants are fulfilled. And by faith, we experience those covenants. And we experience those blessings. So you can let go of the yoke. Christ has taken it upon himself. And all that he requires of you is repentance and faithfulness. And if you should stumble while repenting and being faithful... He's going to pick you back up because he's strong enough to do that. And where does it all lead? Well, it talked about kings. It talked about royalty. Well, guess what? You're an inheritor of a kingdom. Who inherits kingdoms? Kings and queens. You know, we're all considered to be royalty in Christ. We're all considered to be princes right now, but we're going to ascend because of what Christ has done. It's not about what you've done, but what Christ has done. And so in the end, the glory of God is going to be revealed in such a way that we'll be blown away in the wonder of it. And we'll want to keep on reaching for it. And we'll be able to keep on reaching because there'll be so much glory and so much to know and so much to enjoy and so much to appreciate, so much to be able to realize that it could go on for eternity. We're getting there. We're not there yet. But we have that hope.
And we know that our faith is sure if we're in Jesus. So it's in his name. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for reminding us of the covenant which you made between Abraham and yourself. And we know that you are the one who ultimately fulfills the covenant by your own hand. By you, you have brought about the redemption of peoples. By you, you have brought others into the covenant. By your own hand, you have made it so that we can be sons and daughters of God Most High and that you are our God, that we are your people. And so, Lord, we cling to the promises and we cling to the hope found in Jesus Christ, the one by whom we enjoy our inheritance and by whom we have been given the blessings. Let us not stray, Lord, and continue to give us the strength by your grace to persevere. And let your spirit continue to indwell us and continue to push us and urge us to love you, to seek you, and to honor you with all of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for you are worthy of them all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.